today uh, we're talking with Barry from Best Buy, who's the Vice President of Marketing and, I guess, Chief Marketing Officer for Best Buy. Um, Barry, uh, thanks for joining us on the call. Uh, pleasure. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about you and who you are and where you've come from. Well, uh, as you said, my name is Barry Judge, and uh, I've been at Best Buy for, uh, I'd say, about nine years now, and uh, my role is as the Chief Marketing Officer of the company. Um, as with many people, it's probably a you know roundabout way of getting to uh, where I am. Certainly didn't set out to have this kind of role. Um, I got to Best Buy actually through the uh, internet um, about nine years ago. As I said, uh, .com was uh, you know the place to be in marketing, and uh, a group of people were brought into the company to try to sort of blow up the retail. You know, at the time, everybody thought that uh, .com was going to take over uh, at that moment for retail, for stores. And so that's why we were brought in with a mandate to sort of blow the company up. And um, that's kind of what got me into a huge company. I'm kind of a fashion myself to be sort of a, uh, like to be in um, changing and fast-moving environments. And that wouldn't be necessarily what a $40 billion company would be, but that's, but that's essentially how I got there. And I, I found that the company... Um, because it's in retail and because it's been successful over 40 years, kind of has that in its DNA. It changes quickly and fast, and, you know, we're kind of responding to competition and the consumer almost every day, it seems like. So that sort of uh, environment is what uh, attracted me. Um, you know, before that, I was in a startup uh, company called Caribou Coffee, and I was there from uh, essentially one store to about 150 stores. And before that, I was a package goods person, so I worked uh, on a couple, um, you know, pretty big brands, Coca-Cola and Gatorade and Pillsbury. And now, as I settled in Minnesota, Minneapolis, um, from Canadian actually, and uh, moved to the states when I was five, and grew up. Where from in Canada? Uh, Toronto, and uh, grew up in Connecticut, um, and sort of an East Coast kind of person. And with well, so you feel you must feel at home being in Minnesota. That's almost back in Canada, isn't it? Well, yeah. If I if I had grown up in Canada, probably, but I feel more at home in the New York area. Actually, I'm getting to like um, the Midwest a lot after after you know went to business school in Chicago and then worked there for five years. And now I've been here for uh, about 15, so I'm getting used to the Midwest. But it, it took a while. I talk too fast with the Midwest people. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, you know, good place to be. Uh, three kids two dogs, and so uh, it's a good place to raise, raise a family. That's a little snapshot. Do you plan on staying in Minnesota? You know, um, I'm going to ride this thing out. Um, I've got a couple more years left in it, um, hopefully. Um, and then uh, I'm, pretty, I'm open to uh, the right opportunity, actually. So I, I could I could be moving on after that. After that. We'll have to see. It, it wouldn't be actually where I'd choose to live of all places. I'd rather live in the Caribbean, actually, <laughs> after hearing where you, where you are. <laughs> well, you know, you know what? Though? I think you need to like you, you need to pick your time. I think you need to live in Minnesota in the summer and in the, <laughs> in the winter, something like that, because it gets really hot here. Yeah, yeah. Two, I think two or three places would be ideal. <laughs> yeah, I know one guy who lives in. He spends his uh, winters in Toronto, no, summers in Toronto, and winters in Florida, and that, um, that, that might good. be a good a good setup. Yeah, Toronto, I see. Yeah. Um. All right, I'm I'm um, I'm fascinated to see that you turned up on Twitter. Um, I've been using Twitter for a while. I've noticed um, over the past 12 months, um, 
Well, actually, I've only been using Twitter more for like three to, three to four months, but I've noticed over that time that I've been actively using it that more and more of, of the guys in my network and the media editors network are, are showing up on Twitter. Twitter. Yeah. Um, some of them are using it pretty informally. I even see some of the some CEOs of some of these companies that you know they're decent sized companies doing two and three hundred million dollars a year, um, uh, uh, like getting drunk and twittering. Um, I'm 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 curious as to um, what's uh, prompted you to turn up on Twitter. Yeah, you know, I've only been using it for about three weeks, and um, what prompted me to use it, I'm, I'm you know I'm in marketing and I'm trying to understand where communication and people and um, culture and all these things are going. And um, you know, I read about it, but I wasn't really participating in social media at all, MySpace, Facebook, really anything. Um, but our company is um, trying to, um, I think, adopt a lot of sort of open architecture kinds of philosophies. Um, so we've, uh, we're very um, focused on uh, the, not only the what we do, but the how we do it. And how we do it is um, trying to figure out how um, everybody in the company feels like they can contribute. And everybody's point to, everybody's point of view is valid. So we're in this um, big effort around uh, how we use collaborative tools to uh, facilitate that happening. So within the company, we have a um, number of them. Uh, one of them, you probably, you know, I don't know what you know from Twitter, but um, this thing called Blue Shirt Nation, which we launched a couple of years ago. Two guys launched it was really um, not much but I, I gave them the backing but I didn't really know what was going on um, and they basically said the website where um, you know outside of the firewall where um, employees could talk about whatever they wanted to talk about and it wasn't always um, you know it could, it could be an honest genuine dialogue about what was good or bad about the company and uh, example of you know kind of what how it's used was we changed our uh, employee discount policy about uh, nine months ago around a couple of different things and there was just an outrage on Blue Shirt Nation about it. And, you know, we actually ended up changing the policy as a result of all the conversation that was happening. And then from that, we've had a number of other tools. We've got something called the Water Cooler, which is a sort of an online forum, which is more focused on specific questions versus kind of being a place where you hang out, which is what Blue Shirt Nation is. And then we've got this thing called the Predictive Markets, Prediction Markets, uh, which is actually in the Wall Street Journal last week, which is uh, employees trading fictitious stocks. Um, uh, when the stocks are things that are happening in the company, you know whether they're going to succeed or not, whether they're moving forward or not. So it's a way um, you kind of uh, the free market gets information to people because you know sometimes don't get told what you know what's really going on. And then we have something called the Loop, which is a uh, idea forum where you stick your ideas out on this um, on this site, and people can um, add to them and subtract to them, and you can invest in them with fake money or real money, which is in case of what I have real money uh, out there. So all of that kind of activity uh, intrigued me. Uh, and then, uh, as I said, there's a couple people, because we're in technology, you know, we sell technology, we fashion ourselves as a technology company in some ways, um, a couple people that um, uh, are heavily into social media know that I'm kind of up for things. And so um, they essentially told me, you know, you got to get on Twitter. This is, uh, you know, I, I, and I kind of started doing it, and I said, this is kind of feels weird. I don't know what I'm trying to do here. And they sent me the Zappos guy's uh, guide to uh, neophytes trying to get on Twitter, and he said he felt weird, so I felt akin to that. And um, started doing it, and they gave me some people to follow. And um, I'm normally pretty just uh, East Coast direct, transparent, honest, and I started talking about things that, 
were going on in the company, and a bunch of Best Buy people, you know, jumped on. And some, I don't even know how you got a hold of me, but some other people jumped on. And, uh, you know, they, they set up a blog for me, so I'm writing a blog. And just, I, I, the CEO of Twitter, what, the CEO of Twitter tweeted out that, that you had joined Twitter, and, and so I saw that and, and started following you. You figured that you wanted to get some sort of social media presence, and that's why I uh, exactly. the interview. Yeah, so, so anyway, um, I think after jumping in for a month now, I'm, I'm just seeing, uh, I'm, I feel like I've just, um, you know, struck a new vein of things I can learn about, and it's just participating in it, you just see more, so many more possibilities than um, reading about it, and you can just see how it's going to change, I, I think it's ultimately going to change the way we work, it's like an inflection point of some sort, I don't know what it is yet, um, but I, I'm seeing, um, maybe we'll get into this in the interview, just seeing so much possibility uh, in it, um, but so that, that's what got me going, and I'm more of an advocate now to participating, um, and I find myself talking about it with everybody I know. I'm not sure if that's what happened to you when you first got involved, but uh, it's very, uh, it's very interesting. So, long way. My down. first twittering was actually from uh, I, I started it and I tested out and got it working from Cuba. Oh yeah. And I think I'm probably the first person to use Twitter from Cuba. I was pretty <laughs> excited about doing that. Yeah, they're still there. You know, like a year and a half ago. Yeah. Um, I, I took a trip to Cuba. I'm Australian. I can do that. And um, and got it working from a cell phone there, and so I was actually able to post from the web from Cuba on Twitter, which was kind of a little bit shocking to to do that because you know Cuba's a really shut down country. So that's I think one of the interesting things about Twitter, the sort of absolute enablement of communication that it's uh, yeah because of the mobile piece, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm curious then. I mean, obviously we don't know where Twitter's going. There's, there's no. potentially a lot of value in there. What kind of value are you seeing from it for you, or where do you, where do you see any, any potential? Well, so far, um, so far it's a way for me to get information uh, I might either not normally get or get it faster. So one example was we made this mistake um, a few weeks ago. We sent an email to, that we were doing a test on a program, and we were testing with about 1,000 people and uh, the email about the program was supposed to go to a 1,000 people. And the mailing house that we used, that we used, um, maybe that we did use, but we used, uh, actually sent it to about 6.9 million people versus a 1,000. And so all of a sudden, um, I have this application in my, in my um, office, actually, that monitors the, 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 the key social media sites, kind of on a big monitor, and kind of, it kind of scrolls like a stock ticker. I don't, I don't look at it. I just kind of stare at it. You know, I stare at it a little bit when I'm you know, kind of spacing out a little bit. And I just happen to see all these um, these posts about the uh, program, the Reward Zone Black Card. I was like, what? I couldn't figure out why because I knew it was going to a 1,000 people. I didn't actually even know when it was going, but I knew didn't think it would be creating so much chatter. I, just, I didn't know what to think of it. And then I started realizing um, there's something wrong. And so I ended up calling up um, the people that run the program. I said, what's going on? And they didn't actually know. Um, and then they called the mailhouse and they found out. So, um, and then through that process, I became um, very concerned about the consumer reaction and the people that I was working with on this uh, their program because they weren't monitoring in the same way I was. They weren't. It didn't feel as real to them because it was sort of clinical. I felt I, I could. I was reading the consumer issues, and so I think our response was more transparent about what happened, and our response was also trying to um, um, be more empathetic, I think, than it would have been. So that's one example. Another one um, is our recent acquisition of Napster. So we bought Napster, um, or we have some kind of agreement with them, you know, due diligence coming to buy them. 
And I actually, um, I, I, po- I talked about it on Twitter, and I posted a blog entry on my uh, blog about why we bought them. And I was, you know, Napster's one of those, I just be- again, became very aware of, Napster's one of, those, one of those digital brands that people have a real opinion about. Either they like it or they don't like it, but it touches right. a nerve. So when I posted it, um, I posted my uh, entry, uh, in, in several hours I got over 100 people following me, on, additional people following me on Twitter. That never happened before. Yeah, I got like 20 or 30 a day. But I got 100, over 100 people in like two hours. And so I kind of realized something was going on. And I was reading, uh, I read the responses to my blog and some of the ideas on Twitter. And then I realized the people that are actually um, uh, running our digital strategy internally they have a they have a lot of input they could be getting that I don't think they're getting. So um, we had a conversation the next day with uh, myself and a couple of the other people there, social media people, and I think it's going to change. The idea that we came up with is you know no one really knows where digital media digital music's going and no one's happy with it, and we have no vested interest because we don't have a digital music business really. Why don't we think about um, using communities to develop our strategy because uh, they're the ones who care. And um, they also know how hard it is. So, you know, why, why don't we have some kind of point of view going in about what we should do, but why don't we open up um, the development of that strategy to, you know, Twitter and other places. And we'll see. But I think there was a real um, sort of connection with that idea with that business team. And, I, and, my, and selfishly, not only, you know, we come up with some ideas, but I think that could help the Best Buy brand a lot if we, if we actually built, if we built it really in that way. It wasn't a marketing gimmick, but we really did build it that way. So anyway, that was the second Do you think thing. it will work with Napster? I mean, there's already been other companies that have acquired the Napster band and tried to do things with it, and it hasn't, hasn't really gone very far. Do you think that was something that will work? I don't know. We'll see. I think, you know, one difference is we're a pretty big company with lots of resources. The only reason that's good is we have lots of resources, money, and um, people that we can throw at, and, and a commitment to trying to figure out how we can participate digitally. The, you know, the, one of the advantages we have in that is that we sell, you know, one of every three devices, you know, PCs to people. So there's a there's a, an opportunity to talk about digital services, digital kinds of content at the point of sale. Um, so there's an opportunity there. Um, additionally, you know, we've got uh, about 80 million people uh, in our consumer database, and we've got about 30 million people in our reward zone program. So there's 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 opportunities for us if we have a valuable proposition that we, we can connect on it. We'll see if we can come up with a valuable proposition. But, um, you know, I think we've got the touch points that it's possible. Well, you, yeah, you own a lot of consumer relationships, and so I guess it's how far you can take that. Have you, had, have you done other things like this where you sold something that you've made internally rather than be, being a distributor? Uh, well, you know, we, uh, that's a good, that's a good, that's a good, very good, uh, uh, question. Um, I think we're thinking about the, the Napster, um, business in a number of ways. One of them as, is as a brand. Another one is as a platform. A, a third way is, is to sort of, uh, get more digital DNA into our company. And I think we're trying to, like many people, we're trying to figure out, um, what's, What's the point of digital? Is there is it is it about customer relationships strengthening? Is there a business model in there? I think we're gonna, we're going to participate and try to figure out those pieces um, to the point of whether we've actually been a you know more than a middleman essentially is what you said. Um, yeah, we have been. Um, 
you know, we, we've got uh, about 10% of our sales are through our, our own private labels. We've got four or five private labels that we develop our own product. Um, you know, we, we have uh, the number two selling television in America, you know, as a, partially as a result of the number of, transa- the number of people that run through our store, which I think is sort of indicative of what we could do if we come up with a decent value proposition. Um, in addition, um, you know, all our services businesses are, you know, essentially done by us. Geek Squad is our brand, our people. Uh, most of the other um, competitors in the space are third-partying their service, but that's actually our brand. So I think there's examples of us doing it, but certainly that is not typical, so it will take a little more effort. You know, it's an interesting point because um, I guess Walgreens and some of these others will have private label of their own. They're licensable. I don't know. They buy them very cheaply from other companies that produce, like, pills and things like that and then and then sell them in content in quantity under the, the Walmart or Walgreens brand. Is that the sort of stuff that you guys do as well or are you trying more for um, making new things like trying to get Napster to work? Uh, I think we do, we do both. Um, so... We don't, you know, we, we work with, just like Sony or Panasonic or whomever, we work with uh, plants and we produce, you know, essentially that we all use the same four or five plants, in, you know, in Asia to create uh, televisions or um, create DVD players, whatever it happens to be. We, we, we do that. We do try to differentiate. Uh, some, of the, some of it is just, you know, good, better, best. So it's a, uh, essentially a knockoff of somebody else. But within, when we can figure out, um, um, how to bring something to market that no one else brings, we do. Our portable DVD player is the most selling DVD player in America, and it's got features that nobody else has around. Uh, it's focusing on moms, and it's got a bunch of spill-proof features that nobody else has. It has places that remote um, control um, 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 shelves that nobody else has. So it's got things nobody else has. Our, we've got some wireless speakers nobody else has created. Uh, I think we're trying to move more into that value chain, um, you know, we're not going to be the um, leader because we don't have the R&D that um, a lot of the other manufacturers have, but um, we are creating that anew. Um, and, again, I think we're innovating um, in a big way in the services business. Um, we just came out with a uh, sort of premium, we call it black tie protection, um, premium um, assurance uh, slash warranty um, products this last week. So I think, you know, there are examples of innovating um, and doing things, doing things new. Um, and there's always an opportunity to uh, essentially cut out the manufacturers and sell our own our own label. Well, I mean, I wish you put the, the NAFTA deal. That'd be great if someone could get it to work. Yeah. Um, on on Twitter, have you seen that there's uh, a user called Comcast Cares? I haven't seen that one. Is that, uh, is that um, Comcast? Yeah, it's Comcast. It's a guy. I think his name is Frank, and he's somewhere in Comcast. And now I think he's he's authorized sort of at the top levels of the company. And so basically when people go around complaining and screaming about Comcast and whatever they've done, they can go and get in touch with him, and he's the guy then that goes and, and has some level of authority to rectify things internally. So he's sort of helping manage a little bit the Comcast brand yep. on Twitter. Yeah, we have somebody um, who's in our customer, a couple people, I believe, who are in our customer care area that do the same thing, and I'm noticing that a lot of brands do that. Uh, Home Depot does that. AT&T does that. Um, you know, we're, we're out there. I think we're... Again, we're trying to understand what the conversation is about our brand. I don't know if we're necessarily going to fix things, you know, based on what we read on Twitter uh, in terms of that direct um, uh, issue. But certainly, and we do, but it also certainly helps us understand, you know, the, the, the extent some issues exist. 
Because I mean, you've got a, you're in a tough position in a lot of ways. I mean, Best Buy is a supplier to volume of computers you sell. It's got to be a, a supplier to a large percentage of bloggers who are very vocal and active in what they they say. They they get a lot of rankings in Google, and so they they have a lot of power. How do you how on earth do you get in and, and work with that sort of thing? Uh, well, what do you mean? I'm not, I'm not following the question. Well, I mean, there, there can be a lot of complaints around the web. I mean, I I, I see. Praise about Best Buy, but I also see a lot of complaints on sites like Humorous and sites like that. I mean, how yeah. how do you get in and, and and work with that kind of stuff? That's a that's a, a tough position to be in, is it not? Well, I think it's uh, I think what's important, you know, uh, you know. So let's see, we do I don't know, we might have a hundred million, five hundred million transactions uh, a year, right. and you know, over a billion interactions, and like way more than a billion interactions. So we're, the chances of getting every one of those right is pretty remote. <laughs> um, no, it's obviously yeah. not going to happen. That's that's the thing. But then it's the complaints that are going to stand out. Yeah, but I think I think the important thing is we, we want to make it easy for people to complain because we we want to know what's going on. Um, and because the only way we can actually address anything and get better, because our, our, our intent is always to get better. We're not going to be perfect, uh, as we just discussed, and no one will be perfect. But we we do believe we can get better. We think we've gotten better, and we can continue to get better. And I think the conversations that are happening on the web are the real ones. Uh, you know, they're not always. I don't always. I don't always agree with them, but it is what it is. They're they're out there, and I think to the extent we can encourage people to tell us what they think, uh, the the better we're going to get. And that's kind of the mantra. And that's kind of as I mentioned earlier about why I'm on social. One of the reasons I'm on social media is just to hear the real stuff. You know, as a CMO, I don't hear the real stuff often. Always, I wish I did. Um, on Twitter, I'm finding uh, not only are customers telling me the real stuff, at least what they think, and it's a slice of customers because not, not every kind of customer is on Twitter, but the employees that go on Twitter, uh, I, I have a different kind of dialogue with them than I would just seeing them in the elevator. So I just think that hearing the real stuff is what's important. We can do something about it. Are you familiar with a site called consumers.com? Oh, yeah, absolutely. they got an agenda. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, because I've seen, I've seen you guys on there so much. That's, you know, well, you know, so it's good to know what's going on. Again, we're not going to change the point of view uh, of a, a specific editorial, which is what the consumers is about, is, you know, exploiting situations um, in a way that, uh, you know, drives readership. So it's kind of, one, to me, it's right. one of those places. It's not, it's not ABC of the consumer. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of the fringe. But, um it's important to know what's going on over there. So we can look at it, we read it, um, and we'll, we'll respond in a way that's uh, true to who we are. Um, but uh, we also don't necessarily um, agree with all the editorial that's written on that site. I think most... Uh, that's that's the, interesting. So you're, you're, you, you do want all this stuff out in the open, the good, bad, and the ugly, and yeah. so that you can work to address the things that you feel are problems and, and, and keep managing the business as best as you can according to your values. I think what's important is for people to, um, you know, as a retailer, especially in this space, is for people to trust us. And the only way people trust us is we need to be uh, behave in a way that, um, you know, that, that, that someone would, tr- would, you know, would trustworthy. And I think... Part of that is just kind of sharing really what being being honest, genuine, and open about what's good and what's bad, what's what's working, what's not working, um, and basically just I think people give us credit if we're trying to make things better, we're trying to improve, we're hearing um, we're hearing what's going on, and you know, there's a lot of legacy in our industry of um, you know not always owning up to really what's going on and giving half answers and 
uh, shying away from things. And I, as a company, we're trying to, you know, trying to, we're trying. I think we we've done a lot of work around re-engineering that thought, and I think uh, this is part of it. Is just acknowledging what's good and what's not so good. We we want it all, and I think, you know, again, how we could use social media um, going forward is maybe we start um, somehow uh, getting all those conversations on our websites. So people can, and it's not hard for people to see what people, what, what's being said about Best Buy, both the good and the bad, because it's being said. You know, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, it's being said. Why not make it easy? And then, and then you can learn from it and yeah. in, in cases where necessary, fix it and so on. Let's make it easy now. Robert Stevens, who's the founder of B-Squad, still works at Best Buy, he said to me, and I always stuck in my, stick in my head, let's make it really easy for customers to complain. We want, to, we want to hear it, then, and then we can do something about it. So let's do all we can to make it easy. So to me, this would be another example of making it easy for people to complain. Yeah, it's a little different when it's online, though, and stuff sticks around forever and, you know, thousands of pages of complaints. But um... Yeah, but, you know, if the, I think if the experience is getting better, um, it's improving, we address things, I think we'll get credit for that, too. Yeah. No, I think you're right. It's a good um, I'm interested in your, your online store. Is that um, it, Do you do a, lo- a large percentage of your sales through online? I know that was something you started at Best Buy, wasn't it? Yep. Um, you know, honestly, I can't remember whether we um, talk about our specific sales online or not. Um, I can look after this interview is over whether I'm allowed to say what our, sale, our actual sales are. Um, it's, uh, it's significant. You know, because we do uh, in the U.S., we do about $35 billion in total revenue. So you can imagine um, that we do a lot of business online as well, given the products that we sell. Um, right. So it's, it's, it, it is significant. We're you know, one of the largest um, retailers online as well as being the largest offline. Uh, we're stronger in certain categories, naturally. You expect that. Now, when you look at our value proposition online, you know, part of our value proposition online is that we have stores. Um, when you think about as we try to differentiate versus Amazon. Um, so, so products that lend themselves to having a offline component, like I, w- I want to go look at the television and see how it works. I want to lift up the notebook and see how heavy it is. Those kinds of businesses we do better online. Um, businesses where, um, you know, you've got a lot of stickiness built in like Amazon does with, um, you know, the, the personalization and, you know, basically all the, History that they've been able to build up and make that site better and better and better for you, we don't do as well in those in those businesses. But it's important for us. The channel shift is going on, so it's going to continue to go on. We we, we don't think stores are going to go away ever, but we do know that the um, direct based selling via the internet is going to become a bigger slice of the mix going going forward. So we're doing a lot to invest not only uh, investby.com. Um, but also, and I talked about this a little bit on Twitter, and I'm going to blog about this hopefully this weekend, is um, looking at alternative brands that we can launch online, you know, with a different value proposition than what Best Buy, uh, the brand is known for. Alternative brands. Like another, you know, another, there's, there's different brands, different ways of competing online that a multi-channel brand can't do. Right. Um, and, and at the end of the day, so that's one opportunity. At the end of the day, some people just don't like Best Buy. It's another opportunity. So if you want, if you want to build up um, a bigger share of the pie, uh, potentially launching another brand that's not Best Buy might make some sense. Launching or buying. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that could be, yeah. We got the, that could be a great strategy. We, we use that online sometimes with, 
internet marketing stuff, um, got some particular site that's selling well, um, you're going to get knocked off anyway, so you may as well knock yourself off and, and, and get the extra traffic volume that way. So I guess that's applying the same strategy to retail. In a lot of ways, too, it's easier. Well, it's not necessarily easier, but you can envision um, going national online faster than you can with a store. Think about it. Most store brands, if you actually dig into them and look at them deeply, they've been around 20, 30 years because they've bounced around for like 10 years trying to figure out even what, their, what, the, what their idea even is. You know, And then as they get the idea... Then you got to scale out stores. Stores are expensive to build, um, and it takes a long time, a while to to, to um, densify a geography so that advertising can make sense. So it, it, if you came up, we had a killer um, retail store-based brand right now. It would take us 15 years to roll the thing out across the country. We just don't have enough. No one has enough money to, and it takes a while to build out awareness too. So in some ways, it's you can you can do it faster online. Interestingly. So online, um, you have your online store, you're doing online sales. Do you have much of an affiliate program? Are you doing a lot of affiliate sales? Um, we do um, um, pretty, big, pretty good business that way. Um, you know, we're, we're spending a lot more time, honestly, um, figuring out how to make our website uh, more relevant, more shoppable, because what the bigger impact for us is how the, how the website, even though we sell a lot online, how the website actually impacts in-store sales, retail sales, in-the-store sales, brick-and-mortar sales, whatever that, whatever you want to call. So we, we spent a lot of time uh, actually building up our feature set um, online so that we can help our offline business. So I wouldn't call us a leader in affiliate marketing. We do a decent business, but more of our time spent on how we can actually help you figure out what you want to buy in our stores. Um, to give you a comparison, I've talked with um, some numbers with some guys that are doing, um, I mean, a billion dollars a year, and they've talked about um, 10 to 20 percent of their volume coming from affiliates. Yeah, that's, that's about what we do. And we're bigger than a billion dollars online. Right. So obviously your sales is bigger. So, so yeah. well, I mean, at 35 billion a year in 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 total revenues, that would put you at 3.5 billion through affiliates. No, no, I meant 20 uh, percent of our online business. Not 20%. Okay, 20% of online. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, do you do a lot of, um, of work with direct response marketing? How, how, how does direct response fit in with that? Because you're obviously, you, you do have a brand. You do a lot of branding, advertising. Direct response is huge. I mean, we, we have a, um, as I mentioned earlier, we have 29, 29, maybe 30, but 29 million people for sure in our Rewards on Loyalty program. So, um, over 50% of our sales um, are run through with, with using our card. And uh, that is a tremendous source of understanding consumers um, better than we would if we didn't have that card. In addition, we, uh, a few months ago, we launched a silver tier within our reward zone program in which we're building into experiential benefits, you know, return policy differences. When you call uh, us on the phone, you get prior, you know, you have a special phone number early access or, or uh, guaranteed access to certain kinds of short um, um, inventory products like Wii's, et cetera. So within that, um, there's a lot of direct marketing that goes on. In addition, um, we've built uh, out a number of different um, models that are uh, very predictive in terms of who will respond to direct marketing um, offers and who won't. So we, we do, um, during the year, we do about eight programs where we um, invite people in for sales you know, during the 12 months of the year 
based upon, um, you know, basically understanding the future value as well as who will respond to direct marketing. Uh, as well, we do a number of trigger programs. So we have a pretty good understanding of once you buy product X, you know, say you buy a t- flat panel television, we know over the next 12 months the kinds of, you know, we call it purchase path, the kinds of products that you're likely to want to buy based upon a, a history of other people that have bought that product. And we'll send out email or direct mail, um, you know, inviting you to buy the product that you're probably going to want. So I would say about of our mix, um, especially to include rewards, um, you know, 25, 30% of our mix is in direct marketing. So, so you and so you have very prominent direct marketers on staff, and that is a that is an important part of your organization. Yep. That's interesting. And you mentioned the, the card um, where you're tracking uh, purchase behavior and then analyzing and understanding people better. How does that work? How does it, it, it work? What do you mean? Yeah, like what do you actually end up understanding? What, kind of, what sort of patterns do you end up seeing and things like that? Well, we understand, first of all, um, how much a customer is worth to us. Um, and, and that's important because it helps us understand uh, as we get to more customer-specific investments versus mass investments. We could spend more money um, on retaining this kind of customer, or not this kind, this actual customer, versus um, uh, another customer that might come into us once or twice or you know three times a year. In addition, we use it to understand not just um, frequency of purchase but profitability. And we know you know we have our entire customer database. Um, uh, we've been able to you know, essentially assign profitability to every one of them. So we break them into deciles. Um, top decile, bottom decile, and there's a lot of interesting stuff in the top decile and in the bottom decile. They're, you know, the bottom decile people are interesting. The top decile are obviously interesting because they're the most profitable people. The bottom decile, though, are interesting because they actually, um, for us, we lose a lot of money on those people, but they're not necessarily, you know, quote-unquote bad customers. They're actually kind of good customers. They're buying all over the store, and they end up buying things that aren't that profitable for us. So the opportunity with them is to try to figure out how to, they want they engage they're very engaged with us how do we um, put more profitable ideas in front of them than the ones that, that make us lose money so it helps us understand uh, customer specific investments um, and then as I talked about um, because we have an understanding of um, what people are doing we can do much more effective direct marketing and then lastly it helps us understand um, when, when our sales are up or down in particular business or geography we can understand who, who they're up, up or down with, and then that helps us fine-tune our promotional strategy, even, even on a mass basis. So really, I mean, because I, I have really very little understanding of retail. My, my experience is all, is all Internet-based. But really, although you talk about your marketing mix being 25 to 30% of the overall company's marketing, in fact, a Best Buy store is like a little direct marketing test pool where you're, like, testing all kinds of stuff all the time to see what works. Yep. Exactly. Now that's, and that's kind of, um, I talked earlier about creating a sort of open architecture culture, and that's kind of what we want to get to um, in the sense of it's not my responsibility to come up with all the marketing ideas. If we can really, uh, um, you know, enable a culture that, where people believe and feel accountable to the fact that they need to come up with their own marketing ideas, then all of a sudden you have versus uh, 25 people in a marketing department trying to come up with stuff, you've got 150,000 people across the company trying to come up with stuff. And that's kind of what, if every store um, and every store has a plan, um, then they get some things from the corporate office, but they also have a responsibility to come up with things the corporate office can't see because there's no way a centralized... Isn't that how McDonald's came up with the Eggs McMuffin? 
Is it? I don't know. Could be. I thought it was something like that. Some store started doing it, and it just worked really well, and they didn't like it initially, and then finally it worked so well that they just rolled it out everywhere. Well, it makes sense. Um, again, I think the corporate office can come up with lots of things, but but to think that they come up, they can come up with everything because they, you know, we all live in Minnesota. You know, I'm not sure how that would really be possible. So to the extent we can do that, that's kind of what that's kind of the big bet we're making is really trying to enable that to happen for real. But then you have to do that while still protecting the brand and the, the customer yeah. experience, don't you? And I think you can do that through, um, you know, providing bumpers. You know, so we've got a brand, a brand idea. And we've broken the brand idea down into five sort of ways it's brought to life, but they're, but they're, but they're big ideas. And so they're not, they're not telling you to do this, do that. They're ideas around, uh, we have this one of them, one of our promises is called never leave you hanging. So I know we leave people hanging because you can read the consumerist, you can read Twitter, but we're trying to get better at never leaving the customer hanging. And so if the, if the store takes that as our mantra, um, they can act in the moment in a way consistent with that because everything's happening in the retail store in the moment. You know, you're in front of them as a consumer, and things are happening. And if they can remember these broad-based principles in their head more more often than before, they can make the right kind of decision. Right. What you were talking about about the uh, the card is very interesting. Um, so you, you you have the card. You can look at member data. You can see which are the most profitable lifetime customers. And so then when you understand who they are better, you can then target your outbound advertising better, both branding and direct marketing focus, to attract those people, can't you? Yep. And so therefore you can afford to pay higher dollar amounts to reach those people, and, and, and therefore you're more competitive in buying that media, which helps grow the store in the, in the, the market that you're strongest. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a thought, because since we understand, we, we can't understand profitability by customer, um, there's a thought... We were just working on this yesterday. That we actually are making too much money on the customers that, that are most profitable. We should be investing more in them, and making them hopefully more loyal with how we're investing. You know, in, in experiential improvements like like the return policy I talked about, and then trying to figure out how the people that are draining dollars, how we can make them more profitable. Um, and then the middle people spend less on them because they're not really contributing much at all. So there's a we're trying to get to a. You've uh, almost taken it too far. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But but there's, a, there's the idea that the people that are that are the most loyal, um, you know, make sure that they don't go anywhere. So make sure you invest in them, because they're because they're going to run they're going to drive your business going forward. You can't lose those people because you know I'm sure every most businesses are the same way. If you lose one of those customers, you know you you need to get 80 new customers or whatever it is. It's always that way. And so you, you got you can't you shouldn't just treat them like everybody else. Um, you, you treat them differently, and then you have a better chance of holding on to them. You know, this is how, how we do everything online. I mean, a site like Facebook, for example, try a new feature, and then they'll test it or optimizing around something like user engagement, and they'll be able to see in a pretty short period of time what, with the new feature if the user engagement increases or decreases, yep. and they, that, that can help them decide whether or not to keep the feature. So it's, it's the same sort of metrics-driven testing. That's, that's really interesting. It, it is, and it's faster online, but you can still do it. You can still do it in the store. Well, you guys have so much volume, too. I mean, just roll it out and couple of stores, and then that gives you your answer, doesn't it? You can, you can read it, yeah. But, but we are seeing a lot of geographical differences, too. So um, it's interesting. Something that might, That's why another reason why we have to, um, we think we have to build a culture where everyone has to contribute, because there's becoming, you know, more and more differences geographically than we've ever seen before. You know, the, the U.S. is, you know, it's like, you know, it's like eight countries, you know, if you, if you, if you actually look How, how would you uh, group the, the different different regions? What's the, what are the differences? Well, I think... Um, 
I think ethnicity is big, so that's a big factor, um, as well as the underlying economy. Uh, and, the, and the kind of business that we're in, the underlying economy is critical. Um, and, and, you know, we had this crazy week last week, right? But the housing market is not bad everywhere. So where the housing market is better, like in, like in Texas and uh, really the southwest, not all the way to Arizona, but, but right before Arizona, Texas, uh, except for Galveston, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, now, but but even Galveston now, with the hurricane, they're going to get all that insurance money, and that's going to actually be a very a very big growth area now for us because people are going to have to you know rebuild their homes. And you people are building homes or moving. That's good for us. Um, so the, the point there is, even even if you're thinking about making investments um, in labor or you know mass media or whatever, you're not you're not going to get the same return. Um, um, just even if you have the same message because of the underlying economy and because of the, of the ethnic um, uh, differences. And the underlying economy isn't just housing. It's also, you know, the kind of industries that are doing well and not so well and the kind, you know, the tech savviness of the people, et cetera. So, um, you know, even within, even within like, um, uh, one of our territories is um, the Midwest. It's Chicago and it's uh, Indianapolis and Detroit. Those three markets are performing very differently. Competitive sets different. I mean, there's all kinds of factors. So that another again, another reason why it just can't be done centrally. It has to be done locally. You know, um, have you uh, have you read about or, or looked at? Uh, do you have an account on Facebook? No, I don't. I might get one now that I've got this Twitter thing going because I, I just didn't understand yeah, all this stuff. But uh, a lot, a lot of a lot of my uh, media innovative guys are, are all on on Facebook, and so you can you can add them all. Um, Facebook is. There's, there's two approaches for internationalizing that I've seen. Um, one is just to pay a, a big um, company or a, a company to go and do all the international versions of your site. Facebook's doing it a different way, which I find really interesting. And I've heard some complaints about, but it seems to be working now, where they, they say, okay, um, we're now making every single language in the world. And those of you who want, you know, particular, you know, like random African language that not many people speak, you can just go in and do all the translation yourself. And so then it's, it's reviewed. It's some sort of peer review process that the, that the version goes through through various levels until it's finally ready, and then they roll it out. And they initially rolled it out on the Spanish language version. I think there were some problems with it initially, but it seems, as far as I can tell, they're ironing the bugs out, which means the localization for Facebook will be done locally everywhere in the world. Um, and so they will end up with every single kind of really localized language. Um, which sounds like it's a little bit similar to what you're talking about with some of the marketing that you're trying to do with Best Buy. Yeah, that's fasc- that's fascinating. I think uh, it has to, like what, what I was talking about before, I think that's a great idea, but we, it has to allow for some sort of localization, though. Okay, I don't think we, we don't think you can pick Best Buy up and stick it all over the world, and, have, and, it's, and it should be exactly the same. We think the core of it, you know, the brand, and big picture brand is the same, but the way it's brought to life in a particular uh, culture is, it should be different. Yeah, I'll give you an interesting example that I've seen. My local gym um, is Gold's Gym, um, so a big American brand on here yep. in the Dominican Republic, yep. and they won't let them play uh, reggaeton, which is the local music which is really popular, which I personally can't stand, but everyone, <laughs> everyone else seems to really like it. They won't let them play it because it's considered their corporate style and it's not allowed. And so here in the DR where people actually would really like to hear it, they're not allowed to. Yeah. So I guess that's the sort of allowances you're talking about. Yep. That's interesting. Um, obviously, I've, I've got, and, and people will be listening and, and reading this, uh, a couple of guys that have very big traffic websites, you know, doing 
multiple billions of impressions per month. And they're the sort of guys that would love to engage you guys in, a, in some sort of a branding campaign. How does that sort of thing normally work? How do they, they talk with you about it, and how does that sort of thing happen? Well, usually it would be through our ad agency, um, which is Avenue A. So typically that's, we, we, you know, we've got a lot of opportunities since we have lots of money. Um, and t- typically uh, the, you know, the, the filter is through them so that they figure out what our, strategy, what our plans can actually. We give them the strategy and they, they go and figure out how to bring it to life. Do you work with the ad agency and then you come up with a, an overall plan, like a media plan, and yep. how it looks, and then the ad agency goes and does the individual filtering of, of all the exactly. websites and all that sort of stuff? And honestly, I don't do it. It may, it may, I could find out. I don't, I don't get we spend, um, you know, we spend over five hundred million dollars a year in marketing. So right. I don't get involved in all these, all the different th- ways of bringing it to life. I couldn't possibly do that. It's too, too much. Uh, no, I can imagine. Because one of the things that's really interesting is, uh, like, with with some of the websites, they. I mean, there's interviews that we've run talking about this, where they, you know, they love branding campaigns from a company like Best Buy because, you know, they can just. They you know, have a certain number of CPMs and then just stick them up on the site, and they, they'll burn through those really, really quickly with no real perceivable return. Um, you, you don't particularly look for a call to action or anything like that. You just want you just want the, the banner in front of people. I mean, from your perspective, you're the you're the you're the marketing guy on the line that's ending up paying for all this stuff. How does that work for you? Well, we we use market. I mean, depends what it is. We use uh, advertising for different purposes. Some purposes are for you know we want people to click and you know we're trying to we're trying to drive uh, engagement um, that you know during that moment or within we actually look at over a seven day period. Um, other times um, we're just we're trying to drive an impression because with the products that we sell um, we're also trying to get uh, top of mind awareness meaning you know you, you might not be ready to buy a television today when you see an ad from us but. Uh, three months from now, when you start thinking about it, it pops in your head for some reason that you want to buy a television, we want to be there in your head. So um, advertising is done for both purposes. Um, and, and actually, um, in mass media, we try to be more general because um, you know, and talk about Best Buy, the brand, because most times, I mean, most people aren't, aren't, interested, in, aren't interested in buying a specific product next week. There might be people who are ready to buy a product, but you know the, the percent of people that want to buy a PC are you know it's only ten percent of the people. The percent of the people that want to buy a TV, it's another ten percent of the people. If we get really specific in mass media, then we're kind of turning off everybody else and just focusing on the ten. If we can land a brand idea, we can we can sort of bring in all the people that are thinking about buying whatever it is they're thinking about buying. Online is more is more targeted, so we typically do less uh, awareness building stuff online, and we actually are trying to drive a action to our website. Oh, so generally online you are moving to always driving some kind of an action? Gen- generally, because, again, people are getting more specific. Um, you think about it, we call it the purchase funnel. Broad-based media, we don't know who we're attracting. We're trying to land just a general idea. Specific sites can give us an idea that people are in a certain mindset, and so we can be trying to get them to do something. We're typically are trying to get them to do something. Now, what it, is, it, isn't, it, isn't isn't always, it isn't always buying. We want to move them through the purchase funnel. So, if you're in consideration, um, you know you're not ready. You're st- consideration means you're thinking about what to buy. We want to get you to the next the next phase, which is I'm, I want to buy, versus I have to buy. Because because when you think about buying a television, 
you know, the typical thought process takes like six months from, from idea generation that I want to buy a television to actually buying one because people are thinking about what they want to do for a while, researching and studying. So we're just trying to move people along wherever they're at. What, what percentage online now would you say is, is based around an action versus uh, just branding? Online, I'd say it's uh, high, you know, about 90%. I'm impressed. That's, that's really good to hear. Very cool. All right. Um, is there anything we uh, haven't talked about you would like to talk about? No, nope, I think that's good. Cool. Well, Barry, thanks very much for your time. Okay, great. Have a nice day.